0: is the truth. Of course, that's the important thing on all of this. Well, brethren, getting apart from that and the wonderful conference, prophecy moves on. I can't help but comment on that. I used to start out the freshman Bible class because I know the kids are carnal when they come into college. So I would often start out with some, uh, some issue of prophecy to help them realize what's happening. And prophecy is marching on. A lot of you may have heard, but probably a lot of you didn't, about the terrible earthquake in Indonesia that took place yesterday, I guess. Now they have found today that it has already killed over three thousand. Over three thousand people are dead, many other thousands are injured or displaced, and the death toll is still climbing. So it may end up being a lot more than that. So it was a terrible earthquake out there and these things certainly are continuing. And as I was telling my wife, we've been very blessed. God almighty has blessed us. My wife, after watching the world news, she encouraged me to watch this program last night that she recorded of Oprah Winfrey. And she was inter- uh, interviewing Ellie Wiesel, this Jewish man who lived through the concentration camps. And I don't watch Oprah very much at all, although she does certain good in her own way. But it was very moving. And it brought me to tears. In fact, I just left because my wife doesn't fully understand or my kids. That was my generation. While these kids were being tortured, while they were being herded into the concentration camps of Adolf Hitler, I was at the roof garden of the the Conner Hotel in Joplin, Missouri, having a dance and having fun. And I always remember that. I was having a good time. And they were suffering and suffering and suffering. And it described the suffering they were going through, and the way he did it, he who lived through it, was very, very meaningful. And I asked her to please try to get that and record it, and i just save it on the TV. Then my son might push the wrong button or somebody to disappear, but if we can keep it, I want to hear that program, review it some night, just before I make a program on the Great Tribulation. And boy, I'll come charging out the next day and stand their hair on end. Those things stir me up, make me very emotional. We have been so blessed, brethren, and we need to appreciate the blessings we have, the love and the warmth and the unity we do have in God's church today. And I'm very, very grateful and very thankful. One thing most of us can be thankful for is a very good marriage. But we know that many in the church have not had a good marriage, and we still have way too many divorces even in the church of God. And certainly in the community, in the society as a whole, it's a horrible thing. And beside that, the divorce rate is not reflecting at all the troubles that it would have reflected 30 or 50 years ago, simply because a lot of people now, instead of getting divorced, they either just live together without benefit of marriage, if you follow me, hundreds of thousands of them, in fact, millions. And so there's no divorce recorded when they split. Other hundreds of thousands, not millions, but they try to claim it's more than it is, are homosexuals. So they don't have any marriage either. And they're perverts. And so those people were not even around, nearly to the extent when I was growing up, but they are now. So all that rottenness does not reflect itself in the divorce rates as it might have done decades ago when many of us were growing up. But this problem is affecting millions of people, and it's a problem all through the year. And certainly God's church is based most of all on the truth and on God and God's Holy Spirit. But the strength of the church is to some extent humanly based on the strength of its families. And we need to build ourselves strong families and strong marriages. And every one of us needs to really realize that. Some of us have had loved ones who have had divorces, and I have too, and I understand that. It's not fun. It is awful. But nevertheless, we need to understand it and not be afraid of the truth and not be afraid of talking about it or facing it and trying to work on it. And, of course, it takes two to tangle. So on most divorces, both parties have had some fault. Often one part party has much more of the fault, but all of us need to constantly examine ourselves so it doesn't happen to us. Turn with me, if you would, to Malachi, the book of Malachi in your Old Testament. Some of you know these verses. Nevertheless, let's go back to them. They're very, very important. God is describing the sins of Israel, and this prophecy is dual. It's, it's a kind of a, a a changeover book, a kind of a an overlapping from Old Testament to New Testament, the last book in the Bible, even in terms of the time it was written. He says, this is the second thing you do. You cover cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so He does not uh regard the offering anymore, nor will He receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Why doesn't God bless us even when we try to do certain things? You see, people in the world do some things that are good, and some people in God's church do some things that are good, but God says if you break one commandment, you break them all. We'll have people all over Charlotte tomorrow who will be filling the parking lots of this city. I've never been to a city where the church parking lots are so full. You know, there's churches everywhere in Charlotte. And they clap and they clap and they sing and they kind of go like this and they have fun at church. You know, they're very enthusiastic. That's not all bad. We should probably have more of that ourselves in the right way. I mean that. And I've talked to our ministry about that. I'm not trying to start a Pentecostal movement, but we don't want to be so cold and so restrained that we're afraid to express any emotion. We've gone to the opposite extreme sometimes, frankly. But at any rate, they're happy and they have a good time at church and they sing and clap and some of them dance around and even holler once in a while and all kinds of stuff. But they don't keep God's law. Some of them know certain good things about loving their neighbor, but they don't obey god and if you understand the whole purpose the ultimate purpose of human existence then you can grasp why the things we talk about so important what is the first and great commandment the first jesus said is to love the eternal god with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind with all of your being that is the first and great commandment And you can sort of be nice to your neighbor in the way you think is best part of the time, unless he hurts you, and then you hurt him back, of course, later, as we found many groups do, you know, when they're in a corner. But on the surface, they'll be pretty nice people most of the time when it's convenient. But they don't fear God, and so they'll break his Sabbath, They will do other things, have idols before them. They worship false gods, and if you try to talk to them, well, I don't agree with you, and I don't care what the Bible says. All that Bible was put together, you know, as the Da Vinci Code says, tries to make people believe. It was not put together, guided by a great God who intended that we have a full record of His will. So they make various excuses as to how they can remove this book or change that around or say, well, that was the Apostle Paul's opinion or whatever they want to say. And get away with breaking this law, that law, this instruction, that instruction. The carnal mind is busy with that. Now, what is the ultimate purpose of God? He is reproducing himself. He is making us like he is. And we've got to always remember that, brethren, in every aspect of life, including our marriages. God wants us to have the wholeness of character that he has to live with him and with Christ and with one another in love and joy and peace throughout all eternity. The immediate purpose for why we're called now, beside the fact we need personal salvation to be a member of God's family, the immediate purpose is, of course, to prepare us to be kings and priests in God's kingdom to be rulers, to be governors. And how can we be kings and priests and govern whole nations according to God's law when we say, well, this is the way I look at it. Oh, really? This is the way I look at it. This is my opinion. When God's Word says something very clearly, So people tend to want to get around God's instruction on all and all areas of life when it disagrees with their opinion. But you see why it's important to God. God is watching us in our marriage. God is watching us in our dealings with one another. God is watching us in the way we use our financial resources. God is watching us in the way we use our time, our talents, everything we have God is watching us in every phase and facet to see if we really have the fear of God, if we are qualifying to do what God says and be loyal to Him and to His law and to His way of life so that we can be fit to be kings and priests in tomorrow's world. Marriage is a great place to learn those lessons. It really is, and a very important place to learn those lessons. So God says... Why do you not receive our offerings? And God says, for what, He says, for, they say, for what reason? And God says, because the eternal has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Many men and some women as well, of course. And over the years, I've learned that many times it is the woman's fault. I can't say it's the man's fault more often, but perhaps it is but both of them are sometimes at fault. They deal treacherously with one another. You, Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. When you become married, you make a covenant, or should do, you make a covenant with this other person in the sight of God to be bound to them in this physical union we call marriage until death does you part doesn't say until you get mad or until you get your feelings hurt or until this or that or something else. You are joining yourself to this other human being before the great God who made us male and female. He's the one who created marriage. He's the one who sets the laws of marriage. And you join yourself to this man or this woman by covenant. But uh, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Why does he make a man and woman one in this marriage union? They become one unit in one sense in this physical life, one flesh. He seeks godly offspring. God is reproducing himself. And God now has billions, thousands of millions of human beings made in his image who someday will become like he is when they're finally called in the great white throne judgment. And when they're finally called in, many of them, most of them will respond undoubtedly once he really calls them and once Satan is not around to confuse them and turn them aside. He wants godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Quit playing games, God tells us. Don't deal treacherously ever with your husband or with your wife. For the eternal God of Israel says He hates divorce. It isn't something he mildly dislikes. That's a strong word. God, the Creator, hates something. And that's one thing he does hate. He hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence. There are attitudes of resentment and bitterness, perhaps even murder that creep into people that are getting ready for a divorce. Says the Eternal of hosts, Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Don't deal treacherously in that way. God hates that And he wants us to build strong marriages Because as we have seen and will see again Marriage is a type of the relationship Between Jesus Christ and the church And it's so important that even in our lives And some of you young people are not married yet Others of you are just newly married And you need to learn this You people here and you young people All across the country I haven't heard about any problems right here In our church Although we've certainly had them But I mean any recent problems But I have heard about them elsewhere, and we certainly do have marriage problems all across the United States and around the world in the church of God. And, brethren, we are going to have a greater impact and are already having a far greater impact, as Mr. Powell's report brought out. More and more people are going to be coming in, and they're going to be bringing their baggage with them. They're going to have broken marriages. Maybe they're already divorced or they're separated but not divorced And they'll come in with all this hate and resentment and one thing and the other. And we'll have to learn to deal with that and help these people get the right approach. So it's very important. One of the key purposes of marriage is having a godly offspring. I met a woman on a plane a few years ago, a young woman who was just getting married. And we talked. She was sitting right next to me there. And I was in the aisle seat and she was in the other seat. So we talked a while. I said, oh, that's nice. How many children do you plan to have? Oh, we don't plan to have any children at all. She says, I don't want any children. I've had a number of young people in the church tell me that. We don't want any little children. Oh, really? What's wrong with you that you don't want any children? God's command to married people is be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. But we're living in the me generation. I want fun I don't want to be encumbered by any extra responsibility and I want my fun and I want my time and I want it now. I'm living in the me generation and I'm 100% selfish and I intend to remain that way. (laughs) That's the way a lot of young people think. They don't put it in those words but that's the way they reflect it quite often. So we need to realize that this same selfishness, of course, carries right on over into their marriages often and God is left out They don't think about God in relation to all these things. I have here a report from the Christian Post, came out just yesterday, as a matter of fact. It says, 8 out of 10 Americans feel the country's moral values are getting worse, a record high for the annual Gallup poll survey since it began in 2002. According to the poll of 1,002 adults conducted May 8th to 11th just about three weeks ago, And released yesterday, 81% more than 4 out of 5, you see, of adults say the nation's state of moral values is getting worse. So that's getting pretty strong. They all realize that. They don't know exactly why. Mr. Weston gave a fine sermon about two weeks ago on standards. Who sets the standard? God does. I am the eternal God says over and over, you shall not do this and you shall do that. That is where the standard of marriage comes from. That is where the standard of our sexual conduct comes from. Not from our opinion, not from television, not even from Oprah Winfrey and her program, or from all these other programs, which are a mixture of good and evil. And we need to realize that. Republicans and Democrats varied widely on their outlook of what is more permissible Democrats were more likely to approve marriage-related issues while Republicans were more lenient on issues concerning animal rights, (laughs) animal rights. (laughs) According to the results, 53% of Democrats said homosexuality is morally acceptable. Over half of them, Hillary's followers. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) Only 36% of Republicans said the same in regards to divorce 71% of Democrats viewed it as morally acceptable While 59% of Republicans uh, said the same So 71% of Democrats, almost three out of four, said divorce is okay Whereas less than three-fifths of the Republicans felt that way Although that's still a majority Uh... Also, uh, some f- 65% of Democrats approved sex between an unmarried wa- man and woman, in other words, fornication. Two-thirds of them thought it was all right compared to 50% of the Republicans. Also, 57% of Democrats approved of having a baby outside of marriage, while 43% of Republicans felt the same. Can you believe that? Almost three out of five Democrats said it's OK to have a, bear, a, a little baby, a helpless little baby, outside of marriage. That's the way they reason, the liberals in our country, who are very quickly taking over. And I frankly believe, brethren, I may be wrong, I'm not a prophet, so I'm not saying this is a prophecy. I'm just saying this is the way I, I sort of think what's going to happen, possibly, probably. I think we're going to get a—we a, a, often go to one extreme or the other, as you know, in our politics— and I've been watching that for about 60 years as I started reading the newspaper clear back in junior high school. And we'll have swing to the right, then we'll swing to the left. Well, we've had George Bush, and Mr. Bush has cerebral homosexuals at sub-cabinet level, even in his administration. Frankly, you don't know that, but if you read carefully, you do, and they'll bring that out, name them. And, of course, Vice President Cheney's wife, uh, daughter, I mean, is a lesbian, as is pretty well known. They've got them there as well, so they're not perfect. But overall, he's a pretty conservative man by common standards. I mean, compared to common standards, which are not very good, (laughs) but compared to current standards, he's pretty hes pretty conservative. So they're going to swing the other way. And next time, it'll be Hillary or Al Gore or somebody. I don't know who it'll be. Someone like that. And they'll swing back the other way. Then the new guy will get in. And what will he or she do? Well, they begin to pull us down so that by 2008, 9, 10 along and there, we will become a stench in God's nostrils even more than we are today. And today it's pretty bad. Today it's pretty bad. We've had this horrible earthquake over in Indonesia killing over 3,000 people. We had one in Pakistan recently. We had the tsunami in Southeast Asia killing, you know, about a quarter of a million. And we had the terrible tragedy, of course, in the Gulf Coast, right, in the Sin City there, New Orleans. But it didn't kill near as many people. God has still spared America overall of horrible tragedy. Why? We still probably have quite a number of fairly decent people here, you know, based on what they understand. And God has been merciful. But if we swing back the other way... By the years 2008 through 12 or along in there, we're going to see a big moral toboggan slide beginning. And God Almighty will intervene with things that will stand your hair on head, your uh, your hair up on your head, on the back of your neck. That's why God says back here in Mark, you know, talking about the coming tribulation. I'm kind sort of digressing, but my wife and I were talking about that in relationship to Ellie Wiesel's comments on the terrible concentration camps last night. He talks here about the tribulation in in Mark chapter 13 and verse 19. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation. Never such a time since the beginning of creation which God created until this time no nor ever shall be. The most horrible time since the beginning of creation. It's coming on us, coming on our nation because we're getting into sexual perversion and because we're saying we can have children outside of marriage That it doesn't make any difference. It makes a difference to God. We can just divorce for this and that reason. And that does make a difference to God. We can use our own human reason. and We don't have to go with the Bible. And so they have all these books coming out like You know The Da Vinci Code and these other books and these movies And people say, well, he can't be sure of this and can't be sure of that And Satan is throwing all this dust up in the air To completely confuse people and tear them to pieces As far as being willing to fear God, the God of the Bible And he's doing a pretty good job of it So we need to understand that So God is dealing with us and will continue to do so, of course but much more as we turn aside from God, as we no doubt will be doing much more in in the future. Too many men and women are only out for self, and they don't think about what God said and what God has in mind, the whole purpose of human existence, the purpose of marriage. Turn with me back to Genesis, if you would, back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin at the beginning. I'm going to get a little bit of this tea here. He says here in Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. As I've said, that wasn't 6,000 years ago. That may have been 6 billion or 6 trillion. We don't know. But God did do it. He is our Father. He is our Creator. And our Father by virtue of creation. And our Father spiritually if we follow Him. After then creating... Of course, the heavens, the earth, and they put it recreating them, as he points out here, putting the animals and the plants on this present planet. Then God said in verse twenty eight, let us make man this is verse twenty six, I'm sorry, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us because God is composed of more than one personality. And we're going to be added as another personality And another and another and another to the family of God Let us make them like we are And let them have dominion From the beginning God gave man dominion Wants us to be part of the divine family The ruling family, the creating family So God created man in His image, verse 27 In the image of God He created him He gave us certain God-like qualities We can discern the good and resist the evil we can grasp things and envision things, have creative imagination, have the kind of mind that no animal has remotely, We're made like God. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, both have mind, both have creative imagination. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So that was his first command to Adam and Eve. Satan has tried to pervert everything, and Satan has tried to make sex evil. And all through the Middle Ages, of course, why they had the so-called Victorian thing that started before Queen Victoria, but they had the Catholic Church, the idea you're more holy if you're like the Virgin Mary. You don't get married at all. So they had literally hundreds of thousands and over a period of centuries, millions of young men and young women writhing, twisting and turning at night, being unable to sleep, what's wrong with me? And they had these sexual drive and they didn't know what to do about it. They got into masturbation, perversion, homosexuality, and the pre-sleeping with the nuns and all the other stuff a lot of you know about and is the truth for hundreds of years because of the doctrines of demons as it's described later on here in the New Testament saying it's a sin to marry. Doctrines of demons. God is not against sex. God made man for woman and God made woman for man. Not nasty in his sight He made us exactly the way we are And he made woman a beautiful body That man would automatically be attracted to It's just that we have misused that Misused that Just used a woman as a sex object And put pictures of her up there To sell cigarettes To sell speedboats To sell everything you could think of And as though it's a, we're, we're playing bunny rabbits You see with sex Rather than that be something That attracts you to a mate And the emphasis being on having a family Family, family, having a wife, a wife, a wife, having a husband, having security, stability with someone beautiful, someone kind and considered in your marriage. So God's first command was what? Have sex. You can word it however you want to. I kind of like it It says, be fruitful and multiply. He's saying love each other and have lots of kids. But that doesn't mean kiss your girlfriend behind the ear. (laughs) All right. We can understand that. He made man for woman. It is not nasty. He wanted us to be totally one. And He made it a right thing, a beautiful thing, that we're not to be playing games with, though, in God's sight, but to look forward to in a right, clean, wholesome way. Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea. From the beginning, man was told to multiply, to be, have a mate, and to have children. And then to learn to have dominion and create things and take care of the creation. You know, clen- keep it and take care of it, he told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And have dominion over the animals. The great big lions and tigers are more powerful than we are. But they don't catch us and put us into, ca- into cages. We catch them and put them into cages. Because we are made in the image of God. We have the kind of mind God has in creative imagination. and We can do that. We can put men into outer space. We can create these computers and all the other things that animals can't even begin to start to imagine. Because we're made in the image of God in our mind as well as in our body. So it's a tremendous thing that God has given us. And marriage is part of all that when we understand it. We're made because God wants us to be married and wants us to have a mate. So in verse 18, the eternal God said, It is not good that man should be alone. That is not good. That doesn't mean if your mate dies and you're much older, you have to remarry if you're already in your 60s or 70s or 90s or whatever. You know, my wife and I have often talked that if one of us dies, the other one probably won't remarry. My first wife died when I was 46. And I did remarry. In fact, technically, I was still 45 when she was at the end of my 45th year. And so I did remarry because I was so much younger. And my wife was only about 31 when her husband died. And so we remarried, and even though we were 15 and a half years apart, but she'd been married a number of years. And we'd been happily married for 28 and a half years. And I was happily married to my first wife for over 20 years. So I've been married, you know, about 50 years, but two marriages, you have to put them together in that way, so to speak. And that was sad for her husband to die in a boating accident and for my wife to die of cancer. But once you get older, it doesn't mean everybody's got to continue to be married every bit But at some point in your life, it's normally better to learn the lessons of marriage It's better for you And so it is not good that man should be alone And remember when he says man, he's speaking obviously in the generic sense Mankind, mankind So I think we all understand that Not good for a woman to be alone either Both need, each needs the other I will make him a helper comparable to him. Not some ant or goat or chimpanzee down here of much lesser stature, but like he is, comparable to him. A personality, a human being with whom he's able to share his plans, his hopes, his dreams, his feelings, his whole life. If God just wanted to make a sex object, I suppose he could have made a super ape or something like that. I'm being very blunt. But God didn't do that. He made a woman like man with understanding, a mind, feelings, and so on. Because it goes far, far beyond the sexual part. It goes into the aspect of living together, sharing, living, giving, forgiving, helping, serving, ups and downs, sickness and health, until death do you part. And you learn lessons of love, of kindness, of forgiveness, of adaptability, of loyalty, that lasts forever. And those lessons are being are being built in you so you can carry those things over into eternal life. You see, that's what it's all about. That's part of the lesson, at least, plus the blessing in this physical life of learning those lessons. So Adam is given all these animals to name, and he named them. But there was not found a helper comparable to him, verse 20. So God caused this deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he literally took one of Adam's ribs... Yes, you can say that's all, uh, you know, kind of poetic or whatever. I think that happened. You could believe whatever you want to. I think God did do it that way. He could have done it some other way. But I think he literally took part of man's body and made that into a woman to help man realize this other being is exactly like you are. And she came right out from you just like all of us men came right out from our mother. The woman was of the man. And later, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, the man is of the woman, because all of us men had to have a mother. But in the first instance, the women came from the man. So he could realize that something close to Adam's heart, maybe it was the rib closest to his heart. We can get sentimental about that, but that might have been the case. We don't know. He made that into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, of course, God had him out here in this pasture, this beautiful Garden of Eden, whatever, and and he saw all these animals. He thought, boy, it's a beautiful horse, you know, and some of these horses look beautiful. (laughs) Where? You know, (laughs) but he couldn't take the horse in his arms. He couldn't lie down with the horse at night and cuddle and talk to the horse quietly and share his plans and hopes and dreams. When it got cold in the wintertime, the horse couldn't warm him up. (laughs) <laughs> you know, all those things that are wonderful in marriage Not nasty, they're good And God describes that Two were able to get heat better than one So many statements like that Just little simple things But nevertheless it's wonderful And God made it to be that way And so this is now just like I am And so he had brought this beautiful creature The woman to Adam This is now bone of my bones And flesh of my flesh She shall be called Isha Literally, in the Hebrew, is Isha. Isha means from Ish, literally, because she was taken out of Ish. The woman's original name was from the man, from Ish. She was taken out. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Well, you've heard me preach on that, but I haven't preached on this for several years. I looked up in my book. I don't think I have at least. And we need to think about this every now and then. And you, brethren, around the world, you need to think about it. And all you new, brethren, think about it deeply and profoundly. And you women, we have some women livers that creep into the church. <laughs> and they don't always mean bad or evil. They're just taught this. They don't understand, just like all kinds of other errors. And they're called, we're all to be the same. And you're, I'm just as good as you are. Well, yes, you are just as good as a man. But there are different roles that God intended from the beginning and God impresses that in our minds if we're willing to let the mind of God if this is the mind of God in print which it is God breathed coming right out from the God who created the sun the moon and the stars the great God who says specific things are going to have to happen to specific nations. And they have happened, and some of them are happening, and more will happen during the lifetimes of most of us. Here, major things, huge things, because this book comes from God, and this book is the revelation of the mind of God. So we need to listen and not try to water it down. God says to the woman, you came right out from the man, and you were intended to be a helper to the man from the beginning. That's why I made you. So don't come into the world saying we're all the same and we're going to compete. Yes, we're all the same humanly. We all have the same potential to become full children of God in the resurrection, but we have different roles in this physical life. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, of course, most women, especially most Christian women, even in the world, once they adapt to that, they can be happy and they can be relaxed but if they fight that and they're trying to read this other stuff, then they get all all men out of shape, as we say, in their tents, and they get this mean look. And you get these uh, different, you know, women feminists, you see their pictures, and they really are pretty hateful. Probably they'll die early, many of them, and some of them have because they get all tight inside and they get cancer, or heart attacks, they're all, all strung out. Because they're not trying to be what God intended for them to be in the first place They cannot ever genuinely be fulfilled And if they get old And here they're in their 60s or 70s and about to die Maybe they'll have someone else You know But if they've never had children Never had a husband Then they'll, you know, who's there? Who cares? Just a nurse in the nursing home Whereas if you, you know, you're with your family And they love you and as you die, they're, they're trying to encourage you. You know they're there. They love you. And you'll go on through your children, through your grandchildren. That means a lot. That means a lot. As it gives a whole different aspect on life in that way. So we've got to think of God's purpose in all of this physically as well as spiritually. So marriage is a place where we learn why we are and what we are. And a man is to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall be one flesh. And a man and his wife are totally one. And again, some women in the earlier parts eras of the United States and Britain were all frigid sexually because they've been taught that sex is sin. And uh, so they kind of froze up and froze their husbands out, so to speak, and that hurt their marriage too, because they didn't understand they're supposed to be one. God wanted them to be one. God says that's wonderful. Give to your husband in that way. Give to your wife in that way. Be givers, givers, givers in the right way. Each one trying to outgive the other in love because you are one flesh. You're not two flesh. You're one flesh. All right. Let's turn now to first Peter and your New Testament. First Peter, brethren, and go through a little bit of what God tells us here back in first Peter chapter three. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husband. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife, as God tells us in Ephesians 5. God made the man first, and he made the woman to be a helper, not a hindrance, not his, his adversary, but a help. So be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they may apart from the word, without or apart from it. In other words, not preaching at your husband. That's not the point. You may not want to preach at him, but apart from preaching at him, you're showing him the example of a Christian woman. Apart from the word, apart from the Bible, they, without preaching, may be won by the conduct of their wives. They see a wonderful, submissive, kind, loving woman who's helping them, serving them, never committing adultery on them, never running around, trying to help them be a success in their lives. And that can impress even a carnal husband. Unless he's really rotten. And there are some that are really rotten. I understand that. But most of them are not that rotten. They'll appreciate that. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, I think we all understand that. Not fear as a monster, but a reverence, as some translated, A kind of a godly reverence. You have to show them this deep respect because of the office God has given the husband. Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair. Woman, don't try to spend all your time doing that. That's not the big thing God is interested in. He's not interested in how perfect you are in that way or wearing gold or putting on a fine apparel. It is a sin to wear gold or put on fine apparel. No, of course not. But don't let that be the big thing in your life. That is not the major thing God is interested in. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit. A quiet spirit. And that's something that's very precious in God's sight. It says He's very precious, this quiet spirit, this submissive, gentle attitude of wanting to be a help to your husband. So all you young women and young wives here and around the world, please think about that. This is God's instruction, not my instruction. I'm just reading what God says. Back in Proverbs, keep your place in First Peter, but back in Proverbs chapter 31 talking about the converted wife, the godly woman, verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. The law of kindness. Some women, you know, don't have the law of kindness on their tongue. Yeah, 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 I told you, bring in the trash. go do that, Blah, 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 blah. And they come at their husband like he was an enemy. And then the husband gets all stirred up. Don't do that. Husband may come in drunk or having drunk too much sometimes. And again, should the should the wife land on him like that? No. The husband shouldn't do that either, by the way. That's sin, but that's not the way to handle it. That's not the way to handle it. I can't give you a whole sermon on how to handle it, but obviously you may need to be more quiet and thoughtful and say, Well, George, I'm sure sorry that deeply hurts me, but here, let's get you into the bathroom before you fall over and and uh, help him and help him get to bed before he falls over or whatever it is. But at any rate, uh, you have to be patient, be kind. You can handle it, yes, but you don't have to yell and fuss at him and make him mad at you. Have the law of kindness in your tongue, and that's an important thing. So uh, he says here, The quiet and gentle spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Now back to 1 Peter 3 verse 5. For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. They did that and they were submissive and God honored that. As Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. Now some wives say I'll never call my husband Lord. Well you don't have to. The word Lord has a different connotation. I think you all know that. But you could say, you know, husband or honey, but you don't have to say something bad. Back then, the word Lord meant boss, you know, Lord Jones and Lord Smith and the the Lord of the house, the Lord of the manor over in England. So that's why they use that term. So uh, sometimes when I tell my wife something and kind of authoritatively and if she's in a good attitude... She usually is, but she'll say, yes, Lord. And she's doing it partly kidding, of course. She yes, Lord. <laughs> so I know she's kind of kidding me back and reminding me, be careful how much you're asking me here, but she'll use the term <laughs> Lord literally. So that's all right if you do it in a loving way, but uh, not because you think he's God, because he's not. So Sara obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Obviously don't have fear of your husband And you husbands should not create fear I've counseled brethren with hundreds of women Over a period of the last 56 years 53 years I guess it is In my ministry And I know that many have been afraid of their husbands Literally their husband would physically abuse them And hurt them awful I told you about the men That were beating their wives at Big Sandy And how I yelled at them and from the pulpit And said to talk to me and two women called me when I was deputy chancellor there, and they were talking and crying, but this week I said, tell me who you are and I'll come over. No, if you, if you talk to my husband, he'll just beat me all the more. They were afraid to even tell me who they were. We had a congregation of over 1,500. We had the, later they split the Big Sandy Church into AM and PM, so I, they knew I didn't recognize their voice, which I didn't, but their husbands were beating them. Some men are just mean, and, uh, I would like to yell at them, but, I, as I said, if I went out to 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 visit their husband, he might be a big guy. Then I intended to bring, as my we used to say, second man or my assistant. I was going to bring Joe Camel. He was my buddy in the locker room, and he was my employee. worked on the athletic staff. He was six six and two hundred and fifty pounds, and he played for the Oakland Raiders when they won the uh, Super Bowl. So he was <laughs> he was the biggest, strongest guy I've ever known in person, except for I guess Marty Cobb's brother. Randall Cobb, who fought Larry Holmes for the full 15 rounds for the heavyweight championship and and uh, Larry Holmes won of course because Randall was not as good a boxer but he was so big brawler he kept coming in and Holmes kept hitting him and hurting him and uh, but at any rate he was pretty powerfully built too so I was going to bring along some help but I was going to talk to them just to the say get right in their face and but I didn't get the chance. So don't be afraid of any, with any terror. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Honor this beautiful young woman or older woman. My wife is not in her teens anymore. I don't want to disclose that, but she, (laughs) but she's still very beautiful to me. She's still the most beautiful woman in the world. And I really mean that. She's very, very beautiful to me. So if you have a woman that you love and you cherish and you think is beautiful and has been your help, I thank God for her because she's been my sweetheart, she's been my help, she helps me all the time, and she's my companion. And that means a lot. As you get older, it's really nice to have someone there. What if she had died a year or two ago? It would have been, I guess, three years ago when she had these two cancer operations. I would have been just desolate be in this big house all alone i hate to even think about it we all need a companion and once you're used to companion in marriage it hits you even more than if you've never had one companion in the first place i know that but honor this companion that has left her family and come and been your wife and been your help for all these years honor her God commands you, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Yes, she's not as big and strong as you are physically, probably. But she's equal to you as a human being in God's sight and may have a better character than you are, may have more kindness and love than you do, which is the important thing God looks at. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, as we saw last night, Ellie Wiesel And Oprah Winfrey walking through the snow, he said, we're just, he was just glad to be alive. And he said, their voices here were in these places. He was just glad to be alive. And if you're glad to be alive and you have a human being that you shared ups and downs and ins and outs and the twists and turns of life with for decades, you should be very glad to be alive with them. And you young people, sometimes you get too involved in thinking, who's sexy, who has bigger breasts, who has prettier legs, who has this or that or something else. Well, that's all nice. And God made woman to have a beautiful figure to a man. God's not against that. He describes that in the Bible. But that's not the major thing. And as you get older, not just the last year or two did I figure this out. I figured this out for decades. You are marrying another human personality. And you'd better respect that and respect that other personality made in the image of God and love that personality. Take care of that personality. Take, cherish that personality that's been willing to share your life with you. You're heirs together of the grace of life. And you're not going up in the smoke in these concentration camps. Dick Armstrong and I got to see Dachau... Back on the trip I had with him there in nineteen fifty four and it was awful. But the one was even worse over there and it blanks out of my mind Birkenau Auschwitz, Auschwitz was the bad one, and Birkenau was part of it. It was even bigger and more awful that they described last night on this television show with Oprah walking through the snow with this man that was one of the few survivors of that horrible camp. Life is precious. Let that person who you share your life with be very precious in your sight, whether it's your husband or your wife. Very precious. And being heirs together of the grace, the gift of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Because your very prayers are not going to be the same. If your wife hates you and you fuss, in your mind you all feel bad and guilty and frustrated and you can't even pray with the same heartfeltness or be happy with the same heartfeltness if you really love your wife and she's mad at you. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion one for another. Now, brethren, he's getting across, he's sort of moving from the marriage into the general Christian life. I know that, but he's just been talking about the, the marriage and the th- that reflects back on the marriage. Have compassion for one another. If her husband makes a mistake... He'll make mistakes. Wives, you know that. Have compassion on him. Did he drink too much or yell at you? When he's down, you try to be up. And you men, when your wife is down, maybe she's having her period or she's having PMS or she's going through the menopause and she has all these way ups and downs emotions. I know one guy back in Big Sandy, better not mention his name, but he was telling us about it and I knew him pretty well. Real macho guy. He said his wife got so mad at him over and over, and we knew them, and he was not a mad guy, but she just went nuts during her menopause, and she literally would yell at him and scream at him, and she threw plates at him, and one time she threw a hot iron at him. <laughs> he, he was a macho guy. He just had to duck and still love her. Well, they're still, still married the last time I heard. They're not in our church, but, you know. So he put up with it, and he still got a wife, the wife of his youth, but she went nuts for a few years during her menopause As a woman will sort of do in a certain way some, some worse than others, of course So have compassion for one another Love as brothers, you see, or sisters in the church Be tender-hearted, be courteous Sometimes when you're courting your wife You open the door for her and you do nice things for her. And then later, once you're married, will you just, you know, treat her like, okay, I'm here. You don't pay attention anymore. No, you better pay attention. Men, don't ever let the romance get out of your marriage. Always try to keep the romance in your marriage. Now, I don't open the wife, the door for my wife every single time we go somewhere. I don't mean that. She doesn't even necessarily want me to or let me. Even coming in here, I often getting my briefcase and she jumps out of the car and starts on in and, and so she beat me and she had the door open. I was kind of speeding up behind her to open the door, but it got open first, which is fine. But when we're going on some special dinner or something nice, I try to open the door for her. And she didn't tell me to do that, but she knows that's what I sort of try to do. I try to make it more special on those occasions. She said that one reason she married me, even though I was older, old and ugly even back then, (laughs) is because I was so courteous. No man had ever treated her before with such courtesy. Well, I wasn't trying to put on an act. How did I learn such courtesy from another woman, my mother? My mother taught me that all my life. She taught me to open the door for women and do this and do that. So I carried that over, and that helped me get this beautiful companion that I now have. Too bad for the rest of you guys. (laughs) I'm kidding. Your wife is very beautiful to you, I'm sure. Anyway, be courteous. Be kind to your wife and courteous. Show respect in that way. And always try, men, to keep the romance going. In other words, you shouldn't have to try a lot. I don't have to try, but I remember one older minister telling me that decades ago, and it did help me, he said, never let the romance go out of your marriage. And it's so important. He explained a little bit. So it's good to continue to kiss your wife behind the ear. Continue to come up behind her when she's doing the dishes and, and squeeze her and tell her you love her. Continue to smell her hair. Continue to tell her how beautiful she is, if she is. And my wife is, and I lie not. You know, but she needs that. Continue to be romantic up until the day you die. Are you always going to be like some young stallion? No. No. Maybe the sex drive will greatly decrease as you get older. But just being together, loving each other, helping each other. You notice these older people, uh, if you've ever been around older people that go on these bus tours, I don't, never been on one, but they, they go around the country together, you know, or they'll be going to this boat and then will the bus will take them there, or then, or all these things. They're so happy. A lot of them are, are about in their fifties. They're 55 to 75, some of them 85. And they all love and they laugh and they pat each other and they're not just their mate, but they're, why? They thought, well, you know, we know these kids, a lot of these other people they knew before and they know that they're not young and uh, sexy anymore. <laughs> so they don't get excited if their wife is flirting with some other man and being friendly, you know, just another man. They can kind of enjoy each other's personality and you're not all torn up about romance starting. Because when you get up in your 60s and 70s, that is very unlikely to happen. Unless you're really eating way too much wheat germ or something. (laughs) Then you're eating way too much. Something's going on. Anyway, you could just love each other as fellow human beings and enjoy being a little bit older without the romance. But towards your mate, you want to show the romance. Not returning evil for evil. Sometimes you men will do something to your wife and she'll say, You treat me this way and I'm going to give you the same thing right back. No don't do that to your husband And if your wife does bad to you Don't you try to get back at her That's stupid Who are you hurting You're hurting the person that ought to be The most precious human being on the earth Just forget it You know or say well honey uh I'm sorry and you know uh I didn't mean it just that way If you said something bad or whatever and But re- a soft answer A soft answer Turns away wrath. Learn to be that way toward your wife. Learn to be that way toward your husband. As I say, when they're down, you need to be up, you know. And when you're down, they need to be up. They need to be strong when you're weak and vice versa. Help each other. Forgive each other. Work through these problems together. Have compassion for one another. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling Well, you always were that. Oh, really? Maybe they were bad in some way before. But do you have to bring that up right now? No. In fact, you might never bring that up through the rest of your marriage. Get over it. Move on. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days in your relationship with your friends and with others in the church, and in your marriage especially, would you see good days? Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace in marriage. Seek peace. Don't look for an excuse to fight. That's stupid. Stupid. S-T-U-P-I-D. Stupid. Stupid. Who are you hurting? You're hurting yourself. You're hurting the whole gentleness and kindness and harmony in your home. Don't do that. Learn to be kind. Learn to be forgiving. Learn to seek peace. Seek it. Create peace in the way you talk and the way you act and the way you forgive one another. And pursue it. Go after it. God wants us to have peace. He wants us to have joy. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who are evil. So we've got to try to seek peace and pursue it. God wants a kingdom. God wants a family where someday, brethren, we're all brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we'll have, a, we'll have spirit bodies. And we'll be together in a great big huge family with millions and later billions of human beings. Not human beings, but spirit beings. But we'll have personality, we'll be different in certain ways, we'll still be us, but we'll have to learn to really love and to forgive one another, not get bent out of shape, not look for a fight, not jab others verbally and put them down, you know, but seek peace. And do that in your marriage. That's very, very important. It really, really is. If you have a problem in all these areas, you may need to seek counseling. And many of you here... I'll say many, a few of you here and many of you brethren around the world in various churches, go to your minister. Ask for counsel. Ask for counsel. And God willing, he'll take the time to counsel with you and go through the ups and downs of life and how to work these things out. Try to get counseling. Some of you may occasionally go to outside counselors. I don't necessarily recommend that. That's not always a sin, but so many of the outside counselors are filled with various ideas, the women's lib, or or it's better to divorce, or they're homosexual. Frankly, a lot of psychologists are. They're weird, many of them. You can tell them, I said so. <laughs> That's what they are. A lot of them are really weird to get into that field. So I don't trust them necessarily. There are some exceptions. Turn to First Corinthians seven. First Corinthians now, chapter seven, and here's a very important aspect of marriage we should consider. The apostle Paul writes to the brethren, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And brethren, many misunderstand this, having taught the epistles class for about 30 years and wrestled with it and gone back and forth. This is what I'm definitely sure it means. He says, you wrote me this. He didn't say, I'm saying this. He says, Paul, you wrote, he says, you wrote me. It is not good for a man to touch a woman. God doesn't say that. God that it is good for a man to have a wife and the two shall be one flesh. You see what I mean? This directly contradicts Genesis and other scriptures in the Bible. If you take it that way, no, it is not good for a man not to touch a woman. That's bad, normally, unless you have special reason why you can't get married or shouldn't get married. It's better if you have a mate. But here's what you wrote me. Because they lived in one of the most sexy cities in the world... It was the second greatest center of Diana worship and they had hundreds of prostitutes all over Corinth. I've been to Corinth and I saw it. They had this Agra Corinth, uh, this hill that they kind of chopped off over the centuries and they go straight up and they had these stairs just you walking straight up like that at the top under the warm Mediterranean nights. They used to have their orgies up there for the little kids wouldn't see it and the old ladies, I guess, they tell you about it. They have old old drawings and references to it. There's sexual orgies, drunken, sexual, bacchanalian orgies they had. It was all over the city, though. Going to have a feast? Remember how it says in 1 Corinthians? Okay, let's get drunk. He said, some of you got drunk on the Passover, he tells them. No, that isn't the way you have a feast. So they had misused sex so much... That some of them went to the opposite extreme, if you follow me, and said, well, let's not have marriage or sex at all. It's bad. Yes, it's bad if you misuse it. You see, some people, like my old Methodist grandmother, whom I love very much and honor, and loved her more than most anyone in my family, except you know, my immediate family. She was the closest grandparent to me, and closer than any aunt or uncle or whatever. But she was an old hard-shell hard Baptist Methodist type lady. And she said, uh, you know, liquor, of course, is sin. She didn't call it uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. It was all liquor and the liquor traffic and so on like that. And everything connected with liquor was bad, just the way she said it. You know, it was awful. That's the way she thought. They called it the Women's Temperance Union, Women's Christian Temperance Union, WCTU. And she was president of it at one time. Was it temperance? No, it was not temperance. Temperance is self-control. It was prohibition. There's a difference, you know. So you jump from one extreme to the other. That's what our people usually do. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, Paul writes, it's all over. You'd better learn to have a mate or you're going to be caught up in this whoredom. You have normal human drives. You better get yourself a husband. You better get yourself a wife. Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to the wife the affection due her, or as some of the translations have it, her conjugal dues or her sexual dues. Your body belongs to each other in that way. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Your body belongs to your husband Now obviously if a woman is feeling really bad Not that she have a headache all the time You know that old joke How the frigid wives will say oh, I have a headache Well they always have a headache That's not right But if a wife generally is sick Or on her period Or about to have a baby Or any number of things Obviously the husband's got to love her He's got to have respect Leave her alone And the husband could have a terrible sickness And be down with the flu Or any number of things And the wife has to have respect for him so the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Some of you women in the older generation might think this is always the husband's problem. He wants more sex. No, I found again in my decades of counseling, sometimes the wives have a stronger drive than the husbands. And you have to tell the husband, you know, uh, do more sit-ups. Eat more wheat germ, you know, whatever. <laughs> Get them going. <laughs> so they can, they can, you know, do their part. That's the truth, too. It works both ways. Do not deprive one another except with consent. If you mutually consent for a time that you may give yourselves to prayer and fasting. That's probably the main reason that you would separate for several days or a week or two or something. And come together again. Oh, really? Yes. Come together again. God tells us through His apostle in the New Testament so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That here you're married and your mate's cold and cuts you off so you're going to go out and commit adultery. Don't do your mate that way. Don't cut him off. Don't cut her off. You may drive him or her into adultery. Don't do it. So God tells us we belong to one another. And it's very important to give in that way. God tells us we're to give to one another. And each one should try to give in that way. It's not wrong. That's because you love this person. You belong to them and they belong to you. Be kind. Be thoughtful. Tell each other your needs. That's the best way to work things out. Be open. Have long conversations about everything. Share your plans, your hopes, your dreams. That's one problem many men have. They're the strong silent type. And I found that that's one of the big problems in many marriage, because the wife will tell me, I just can't talk to my husband. He comes home and he says, you, honey, and kisses me on the cheek. And then he goes off and grabs a beer and sits in front of television. And we don't talk again until the next morning. He drinks a bunch of beer and then goes to bed. Don't do that. Talk to your wife. You can't. You don't need to talk to her three or four hours every night. Obviously, you may want to watch TV a little bit or read something, but, you know, you want to have conversations. Share with her where you've been, what you've done. Share your plans, your hopes, your dreams, and you wives. My wife and I enjoyed that. We used to take long walks out in California until we got here, and it's too hot and humid, so we joined the Y. (laughs) But every every evening, I'd come home, and we'd go down in the canyon and talk about on our walk in the canyon what I did through the day and what she did through the day and this and that and learn to do that. Now, we have to do that over dinner or, or after dinner and other times, but not at the Y necessarily. But you've got to share with one another. You men are not being more macho or strong by being the strong, silent type. You will wreck your marriage. This other human being wants a companion. And especially for those women who are stay-at-home wives, just think about it, you men. And some of you older men have stay-at-home wives. And see, even younger men do. And all wives don't work, although so many do nowadays. But if a wife is home working, as my wife has always done, and my first wife always did, never worked outside the home... What do they do? Well they're shopping and they have that. They see other women and visit and are visiting on the phone or something, but then they're at home and they're home and they're home and the kids. They want someone to talk to. And you need to come home and tell them what you've done and share their share your experiences with them. We'll say, Well, we went out here to lunch and you know, um uh, Mr. Uncle Dick, he disagreed with me, but he finally agreed with me after I explained the whole thing to him. And <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's all going to be okay, and you don't want to make her feel bad. You explain all these things you've been doing all day long, so she's part of it. If there's some horrible thing, you know, I sometimes did too much of that at various stages of my marriage and felt bad later because I would tell my wife too much. Even my first wife about all the problems of various ones and that's not good. You don't have to let them know every bad thing because a woman is often more sensitive and they will brood over that and they will think about it, will think about it, eat on them. Whereas if I heard some problems about this guy back in Ambassador College, and he had this problem or was drinking too much or womanizing and we hadn't got him kicked out yet. Then I would, uh, I would go to the handball court and I would hit the handball a lot harder that afternoon. <laughs> I'd take it out on the handball court. But your wife, she's at home and she doesn't have that outlet and she's going to just brood about this and worry about it. So be careful. Don't dump on your wife, but talk to her, share with her in a positive, loving way. That's very, very important, man. That's extremely important. Learn to communicate and communicate fully and that will really build your mate. So each one should try to love and help and show affection and show romance for the other. And, of course, if you don't show that romance and that affection and share with another, you have robbed your mate or you are now robbing your mate of something very precious. And they'll sometimes come to the place, they'll say, is this all there is? Is this all there is? This man comes home and kisses me on the cheek and goes up to his study or into his television and grabs his beer. He doesn't talk to me. He doesn't share with me. He doesn't kiss me. He shows me no love. What is going on? Just tears a person to pieces or a man that has a wife and he will want to talk to her and she'll cut him off and all she's interested in is the soap operas or whatever she's interested in and doesn't talk to him and she doesn't give him love and affection and he's hungry for it. And he doesn't get it from her. What's he going to do? He either has to pray and fast all the time. Or he's going to start running around or something. You need to love each other. Mentally. Physically. Sexually. Emotionally. Give to each other. Fulfill each other's needs in every way you can. Serve this other human being. Who ought to be precious. Precious in your sight. Back in Matthew 5.27... In Matthew 5, 27, we find here a very important principle. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus Christ said, that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And brethren, again, that's part of our marriage problems in our society because these men and women turn on television and sometimes, yes, even Oprah Winfrey has it. There are all these rotten programs I hear about. I've never seen Desperate Housewives and The Footballers, I think, it's on the BBC channel and they advertise it, but I've never seen it. But I see it advertised when we see BBC News. Just awful, foul, rotten stuff. The Sopranos, filthy gutter talk coming out of their mouth, apparently. Again, I've not seen it, but I've been told about it and I'm sure it's there. Awful things. We would have run them out of town if they'd done that kind of thing when I was growing up. I'm not kidding. It just would not have been tolerated at all. And you young people need to realize that it's a different world you're living in. We are living at the time of the end. And there's not too many more years left to go before God deals with this nation because we're into this stuff. Don't keep putting... Pictures of naked women before you. Don't lust after other women. Don't lust after other men. Don't entertain these ideas at all. Of course it's going to stir you up the wrong way. Of course it's going to lead to fornication before you're married. Or adultery after you're married. Don't do it. Forsake it. Flee fornication, God tells us. Turn to Matthew 6. He says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men in their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Brethren, in marriage especially, you've got to forgive each other. Forgive, forgive, help, get over it, move on. Just pray that God will give you a forgiving heart and just get completely over it and move on. Build that. Share with one another. Think through how you can work through these problems. How can we talk, John? How can we talk, Mary, and work through these problems in a loving Christian way and learn to do that? Read books on marriage if you need to to do that. Get counseling to do that. Marriage is not 50-50 as Mr. Armstrong taught us. 50-50, I'll meet you up here and, boy, you go one inch over the line and I'm going to get mad. No. Marriage is 100%, 100%. And if my wife is sick or she's down mentally or she's going through the menopause, I'd better love her 100% and forgive her and put up with it every way I can. And if I get out of sorts and I'm too domineering or too mean or too what it is, she's got to love me 100% at that point and help me and buoy me up. Not say you there's a line here. It's just 50-50. No, each one lives, loves the other, gives to the other, forgives the other 100%. 100%. To make the marriage work. Do that. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, something we've often used, but I want to do this while we're still here. Ephesians, chapter five, Paul writes in first, first, verse 21 that we ought to be submitting to one another, all of us, submitting to one another. Men submit to your wives at times in that way, where you put up with them and, and, and so on and have mercy on them. In the fear of God and wives submit to your husbands wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord Paul wrote under God's inspiration for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body therefore just as the church is subject to Christ and brethren we ought to be totally subject to Christ. Honestly asking God, please, Father, how can we serve you better? How can we do the work better? How can we preach better? How can we write better? How can we interact with other brethren better? Really trying to do that with all of our hearts. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands. And wives should really honestly try to do that. That's not putting you down. That's helping you fulfill the role for which you're drawing breath. The purpose for which you're created. And God will bless you for that forever and ever. So it's a very important thing. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He didn't love the church part way. He gave his life for the church. And the husband should think I'm going to work not just to make money, but to take care of my family. I'm going to take care of my wife. I'm going to try to buoy up my wife when she's down emotionally and take care of her, help her, encourage her, protect her physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Give yourself for your wife that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word and make it a glorious church. You're not trying to clean up your wife. It doesn't mean that, but Christ did that for the church. So ought husbands to love. The whole thing involves love. Mr. Armstrong explained, brethren, we often get it mixed up. Love is not seeing a pretty woman across the crowded room in a smoke-filled nightclub. Love is outflowing concern. So ought men love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself because she's part of him And a wife who loves her husband loves herself because he is part of her. And so if you learn to give, to help, to serve, to love, and work through and think through how you can, in love, solve these problems with the law of kindness and using wisdom and using humility and using patience and trying to create an atmosphere of love and kindness and an example of loyalty, loyalty to one another until death does you part, then God knows He can make you a member of His family because you will have been developing the habit of giving, of helping, of serving, and of loyalty that He wants in His kingdom forever.